Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew, chapter 17, is where I want to direct your attention. We're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to read the first 13 verses of this passage. Some of you have the wonderful experience of trying to parent your children in the chairs in the auditorium, and it is a challenge. It is a very great challenge, and I uh, admire you for it. I want to encourage you in it. I trust me, none of your children have been as ill-behaved as I was when I was a child. So ask my mother. The good news is I turned talking into church into my career. So you should be encouraged. Keep at it. It's worth it. So Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground, face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. We have had in the course of our marriage uh, between 12 and 15 air mattresses. If you ever have owned an air mattress, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We have them. We use them for when company comes over. We use them for uh, when we go visit my in-laws and the children sleep on the floor uh, uh, overnight on, on the air mattresses. Inevitably, it happens about every other time that we're in Buffalo. One of the kids will come to us in the morning and say, guess what? The air mattress has a leak. They always spring leaks. You wake up, you go to bed on a nice pillow of air, and you wake up with the heaviest parts of your body on the floor. Uh, and it's not very comfortable. Those, those plastic pockets are just not really meant to hold air. They eventually spring leaks. We do what, what everybody does, right? Right before bed, pull it, fill it up as hard as you can, and then you'll make it till the morning, and then we'll fix it again tomorrow and tomorrow. And... Air mattresses can get deflated. Human beings can get deflated, too. Have you ever heard the expression, uh, uh, the, the statistic that for every negative comment you give someone, you need to give them seven uh, encouraging words to, to keep them from becoming deflated as, as people? 
I thought about this, th that this week because this week I started teaching another child how to drive. She's doing fine. She's doing a great job. But everybody, when they start driving, is terrible at it. Some people never improve, but everybody, when they start, it's terrible. There's so many different skills to be involved in, and it's easy to, to be critical and, and, and constantly say, fix this, do this, do that, watch out, don't. And, and you have to remind yourself, the positive, there's encouragement. You have to, you have to inflate as well as deflate. Uh, the same thing can happen to us as followers of Jesus. We're not immune from this. We live in this same world that is filled with the same troubles and trials and challenges that everybody else faces. And life itself can have this deflating impact on us. I wonder if in your life there are leaks. Well, uh, it can happen especially to us as followers of Jesus when we hear someone make what sounds like a very reasonable objection to the faith that we profess in the Lord Jesus. You might see a post on Facebook or hear an interview on television or read an article where someone really says something profound and insightful that, that seems to throw doubt on the truthfulness of the Bible or your confidence in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That can be in, uh, deflating. God, in his kindness, has given to the church men and women who are apologists. They're people who are skilled, very skilled at speaking and, and defending the faith, showing why our confidence in the Lord Jesus is well-reasoned and insightful and coheres to reality. We often think of these men and women as those who go out and do evangelism, sharing the good news with people who don't believe. Here are the 10 reasons why you should believe why Jesus rose from the dead and why you should be a Christian. That's, we think about apologists doing that work. But uh, they spend about 50% of their time, these dear gifted men and women, actually encouraging brothers and sisters in the faith. They, they spend time helping us think through what we believe and, and, and shoring up our confidence in, it, in, in, in the, the, the goodness, the good news that we believe. I am grateful for brothers and sisters who give us all a little bit more air. You might feel especially deflated in moments of suffering when you're suffering. Suffering as a follower, as a follower of Jesus is inevitable. He told us that if we're going to follow him, we have to pick up our crosses and, and follow him. Sometimes following Jesus feels like death. He's just told his disciples that. He just told his disciples I'm going to the cross, and you're going to, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to carry a cross too. There is no glory without suffering. And the disciples, they were reeling from this. This is not what they expected the Messiah to say. This is not what they expected God's deliverer would be like and what would happen to him. He's supposed to win, not lose. And immediately after Jesus told them there is no glory without suffering, we have this account that we just read this morning uh, called of uh, this event called the Transfiguration. It's an event that's meant to shore up the confidence of the disciples. It's meant to shore up our confidence, actually. It's a reinflating passage about the glory that is to come. I know that's what this passage is for because it's what it did for the Apostle Peter, what this event did for the Apostle Peter. Peter wrote about this years ago, and not in the Gospel accounts, but in his second letter that he wrote. Look what he said in 2 Peter chapter 1 about the impact that this event had on his life. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming... 
I didn't, we didn't make this up. I, 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 this is not a fairy tale. I didn't tell you cleverly devised stories when he told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It's interesting, that's how Peter describes the cloud. It's, uh, it's majestic glory. We ourselves, I heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is true, he says, I saw it, I saw it. Jesus Christ is full of glory. You can have confidence in him too, because I saw it and I'm telling you what I saw. I want to walk through this account that Matthew has for us, and I want to think about it under those two headings, as it were. Matthew is going to say something about the glory of the Lord, and he's going to say something about suffering in God's plans. And he's going to put these two things together. There is no glory without suffering. Here is the glory of who Jesus is. And here's a word about suffering and how it relates. So those are the two headings that I want to consider this under. First, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory. This is a passage of scripture uh, about the identity of Jesus, who he is. Let us have a firm grip on this. Many of you are already followers of the Lord Jesus. So these are things that you already believe, but I want to show them to you in the text. Jesus is going to be killed. That's true. That does not mean that he is not the Messiah. He is the Lord of glory. Five things about him. First, this passage reminds us that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. Passage tells us that after six days, that six I think is important. We'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus took these three disciples up to a high mountain and he was, verse two, transfigured before them. It's not a word that we use very much. There's not a lot of detail here about what exactly transfiguration means. It's a word, the original word is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis, the change in form. But that's not exactly what's happening here. Jesus is not a, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That's not, that's not what's happening here. Instead, the, uh, Matthew's using the word metamorphosis here to, to say that Jesus inner reality is becoming externally visible. His eternal glory is becoming visible. His heavenly glory is, is becoming, is shining through the flesh that is his humanity. There's not a lot of details about this here, but this does, there are connection points in this passage between uh, what these men experience, how Matthew records it for us, and revelations or, or manifestations, appearances of God in the Old Testament. So I want to think about some of those because Matthew wants you to think about those. We'll go in reverse order. Look at Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel the prophet, about 500 years before Jesus was born, says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, a human-shaped figure coming with the clouds of heaven. He appro approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is this figure who comes in clouds, who is human-shaped, who receives from God all this power and all this honor and all this sovereignty? Who, who can that possibly be? We go back a little bit to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, himself has another vision. We'll pick it up in the middle of this vision. There came, then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. He just described angels. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. That's what I want someday. It's God's, it's not mine, it's God's throne. Lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man, another man-shaped person. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, his waist down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then he quotes the voice in chapter two. Who is this? Who is this one who, this man-shaped figure who is so brilliant with glory? Now, what happens in Matthew 17 is most like Moses' experience in the book of Exodus when he went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. He had a request of God. He made it in Exodus chapter 33, 18. In the midst of their conversations, Moses said to God, now show me your glory. Show me who you are. I want to know you. And God says, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So Moses has been speaking with God. God must be obscured somehow in a cloud. And, and Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, you can't see my glory and live. My holiness will incinerate you. But... I'll, I'll hide you in a cleft and, and I'll walk by you. I'll tell you my name and you can see the trailing edge of my glory when I pass by. But you cannot see my face. You must not see my face. Now this happens. God does pass him by in Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Now, notice the similarities between Exodus 33 and Matthew 17. High mountain. They go up to a mountain. There's a cloud. Moses went up. I didn't read this, but it's earlier in Exodus. Moses went up, waited six days before he met with God. This is six days after um, uh, Jesus had spoken to them about suffering. Up on the mountain, God appears. Brilliant light, glory, except there's a key difference. 
In Exodus 33, God says, you cannot see my face. No one can see my face and live. But in Matthew 17, it's Jesus, and Jesus' face shines like the sun. Here he is. Here God is. He has appeared, and you can know him. You can talk to him. You can walk with him. You can listen to him. Here he is, his face shining. You may be confused because he's talking about going to the cross, about bearing a cross, but do not be confused about who he is. He's God in the flesh with us. Now, secondly, this passage tells us, reminds us that Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high priest. Remember Moses? He's on the mountain. What happens to Moses on the mountain? He gets from God his word. He gets plans for the temple, that building. Well, it's first a tent. They call the tabernacle. Then in time, they build a permanent building. They call the temple. God gives Moses the plans for the temple where the people are going to meet with him, where they'll, and especially God's going to dwell with them. They'll be able to meet with him in the temple. And God tells Moses about the priesthood. The priests, the men who are going to serve as the representatives before God of the people, the men who are going to help the people offer their sacrifices to God. But there's one of them, one priest, he will be the high priest, and his job is to once a year on the holiest day of the year to bring the blood of the animal into uh, the holiest place in the temple, put sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, that box that represents God's throne, Put the blood on it, and and that one day will be the day in which all the Israelites, all of their sin will be forgiven, all of their uncleanness will be made, will be purified, and that's the one perfect day for the Israelites. They most of them were unclean most of the time. They they lived in constant sin, but that one day of the year there was this one special sacrifice, and that day, that day they were clean and whole before God. That was the high priest's job. The high priest, in his, the description of him, what's very important in the book of Exodus is his clothing. He had a very special wardrobe made for him. He had to have white linen, white linen that was a sign of the holiness of his office that he was to wear very specifically and carefully. And when Matthew describes the appearance of the Lord Jesus, his face is shining. And what does the text say? His clothes, his clothes were as white as the light. Here he is, Jesus, the great high priest, shining in his high priestly robes because he's going to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's going to offer the sacrifice that's going to atone for all sins for all time. Don't be confused about the cross language, the suffering language that Jesus is using. He's on the way to do his high priestly work. Third, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God, the passage tells us, this appearance tells us. In the course of time, Jesus is transfigured before them, and the text says that Moses and Elijah appeared speaking to Jesus. Now, I have questions. I have a lot of questions about this story. One of my questions is, how did they recognize Moses and Elijah? There were no pictures. How did they recognize? Moses looks like Charlton Heston. We know that. That's true. But how... Did they recognize Moses and Elijah? Maybe Moses was standing there with the stone tablets, you know, like the prop, like in every uh, a Bible cartoon you've ever seen. That Moses can't don't go anywhere without the stone tablets and his staff. Maybe I don't know. How did they recognize Elijah? Maybe he was eating bugs. That's what we know about Elijah. Maybe he's eating bugs. 
Wouldn't Elijah be happy? It's the cicada year. He's feasting, right? This would be a thrill for Elijah. I don't know. They, rec- they recognize Moses and Elijah. And, and, and Peter sees the three of them and speaks. Ha, Peter. Peter has a foot-shaped mouth because he's always putting it in there, right? And uh, uh, one of the translations is in Mark or Luke. I can't remember which it is. and I can't remember actually which translation it is. Says of Peter at this point in time, it says, Peter, comma, not knowing what to say, comma, said. That's my life verse. Um, it's an inspiration to me. Peter doesn't know what he's saying, but he speaks. And he says, um, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. Actually, if you wish, that's a sign of growth in Peter's life because the last time Peter rebuked Jesus, it did not go well for him. But he's at least willing to say, you know, if you want me to, it's good. Peter's growing. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I'm not sure what Peter is thinking here. If he wants to, with these structures that he's going to build, memorialize the event, you know, that something significant happened here, we should put up a statue. I don't know. Or is he, is he thinking he wants them to stay for a long time, so he, he's building shelters to make them more comfortable, so they'll, they'll be with him, stay for a while, maybe. I don't know. The problem is that he, by, by saying he wants to build three shelters, he puts Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same plane. Now, that will not do. A cloud comes down. It overshadows them. Who does it cover? Does it cover all six of the men so they're all in a cloud? Or does the cloud come and it just covers Elijah and Moses and Jesus? I don't know. But the voice speaks from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Dale Bruner translates this. This is my priceless son. Son's a thick word in the Bible. It's a thick word. It it gets a lot of use. We think about it in the Hebrew scriptures, in particular in relation to King David. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God told David that one of his descendants would be the Messiah, would be the deliverer, he said to David, you will have a son and, and, and he'll reign and he'll be, I'll be so closely associated with him that though he'll be your son, he'll be as it were my son too. And the Israelites thought about their kings as if they were adopted sons of God, that on coronation day, God adopts them as as sons. In the course of time, the Bible tells us that the Messiah who would come is not just going to be God's adopted son. That's, That's insufficient. He is God's son by nature. He is God the son in the flesh. And here is God the Father saying, as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to be crucified, that's my Son. This is the day that God is, that Jesus, one of the days that Jesus is receiving, as Peter says, glory and honor from his Father as the Son. Now, next in our list, this passage also reminds us that Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the servant. And again, we plug in to the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, again, the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, In the second half of Isaiah in particular, there is a grand description of someone repeatedly called the servant. The servant. He's the servant who's coming and he's going to fulfill God's promises. He's going to fulfill God's purposes. And in Isaiah 42.1, look what it says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, God says. My chosen one in whom 
I am well pleased, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Here he is. He's the Lord of glory. He's God in the flesh. He's the great high priest. He's the son of God. He's the servant. He's going to suffer. Don't think that because he's going to suffer, he's not any of these other things. Change what you think about the Messiah. Don't, don't, don't reject Jesus. Reject what you think about the Messiah. Now, finally here, Jesus is the culmination of God's revelation. He's the culmination of God's revelation. The divine voice speaks twice in Matthew. Twice in Matthew, a voice from heaven speaks. In Matthew 3, at Jesus' res- uh, uh, baptism... And here at Matthew 17, the transfiguration. God speaks twice. Both times he says something very similar, almost identical. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But here in this passage he says, listen to him. Listen to him. Peter, that's your mistake. Peter, your mistake is that you think Moses and Elijah are equal to Jesus. But no, 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 no. Listen to Jesus. Moses is the great lawgiver. That's true. And Elijah is the great prophet. That's, that's true. But they're just pointers to Jesus. They're servants of Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Moses may have led the people in the wilderness, but remember, even when it came to the time to go into the promised land, Moses turned things over to Joshua, and Joshua was the general that led them in to victory in the promised land. And Elijah was the wilderness prophet. He prophesied in the wilderness, but he introduced Elisha, Elisha, the great miracle-working prophet. And now, now, the new and better Joshua is here. The new and better Elisha is here. Jesus, listen to him. One wonders if Matthew doesn't want us to think about that well-known passage in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, these lines, this is called a prayer, it's called, or a, a, um, a word used in prayer by Jews called the great Shema. It's because the word hear, it begins the first sentence, the first word hear in Hebrew is the command Shema. That's what the word Hebrew, uh, Shema means. Hear, O Israel, listen. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Listen, listen, Israel, and God speaks from the cloud and says, listen to my son. Or perhaps we're supposed to think of Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses, speaking to the people, tells them about another prophet that's going to come, another spokesman from God. He says in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Listen to him. This is such an overwhelming revelation of the Lord Jesus that the disciples fall to the ground. They're terrified at this. This is a reminder to us, I think, that that no matter... Whatever you think or whatever you feel, whatever your affections, no matter how much you admire the Lord Jesus, it is probably insufficient. He is greater than you imagine him to be. He is greater than you understand him to be. Um, When I was in high school, my older sister, who was a college student, joined a drum corps um, group. 
some of you know about Drum Corps International, what Drum Corps International is. Drum Corps International is a, is a, a multinational group uh, in the United States and Canada mostly made up of, they would not appreciate this description, but it's uh, like high school bands. When you, when you go to uh, a football game on Friday night in the fall and you watch the high school band, they come out and they do their show, their presentation. Well, Drum Corps International are mostly college students and young adults, some high school students, who have devoted their summers to doing this. They have learned a show and they travel all around the states doing competitions. And my older sister joined a, a drum corps called the Cadets of Bergen County. They used to be in Bergen County, New Jersey. And uh, uh, we, th they, the tour came through Buffalo, so we bought tickets and we went to Buffalo to watch them. We didn't know anything about drum corps. Our high school marching band was so bad we couldn't march and play at the same time. It was terrible. So we knew nothing about marching band. We knew nothing about drum corps, but we went up and we sat down and watched crowds of thousands of people there at the stadium to watch the musicians play. And while we were sitting there watching, I mean, it was nice. We liked music. I liked uh, brass instruments. It was fine. Uh, but every now and then, everyone around us, this whole stadium, would stand up and they'd start clapping and cheering. I mean, not at the end of the shows. I mean, in the middle. They just And we, my parents and I and my sister, we'd look at each other and what, what happened? What's going on? Apparently, they did something brilliant. I have no idea what it is, but apparently, they did something brilliant. Because everybody else here knows about the brilliance except me. Here is the Lord Jesus, and the Bible tells us that you do not have a sufficient grasp yet of his wonder. Our task as a church is to speak of the Lord Jesus and sing about the Lord Jesus and pray to the Lord Jesus so that we all grow in our understanding of who he is, so that every time we meet together, when we, when we leave from this place, we say, Jesus is even better than I thought. He is even more magnificent, more full of glory, more wonderful than I even ever imagined. That's our goal. One of the goals that we have when we meet together as a church. And one of the reasons we do that is because Paul tells us that seeing Jesus' glory, we don't see him with our eyes, we see him with our heart, the eyes of faith. Seeing his glory is transformative. It's transformative. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We think about the supremacy and the awesomeness and the glory and the excellence of the Lord Jesus, and it is transformative. We become like him. He describes it more in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Not only do we have a, 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 a natural problem in that we don't perceive the supreme excellence of the Lord Jesus, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ to as the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So this is what needs to happen when we speak about Jesus. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he makes his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Just like in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light and there's light. God speaks, he works, and we speak about the Lord Jesus and, and God says, let them see 
Let them see the glory of Jesus. Which means, as important as it is that we speak about Jesus aright, what really matters is that God opens our blind eyes so that we can see uh, we sing a hymn occasionally when we open our services. It's, it, if you think about it, the first lines, two lines we're familiar with, and they're wonderful. It gets a little dark in the middle, but let me read some of it, and, and you'll see this wonderful combination of here we're speaking about Jesus, but we pray that God would, would work. Uh, it's uh, brethren, we have met to worship. Listen, brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. Brethren, see poor sisters round you slumbering on the brink of woe. Death is coming, hell is moving. Can you bear to let them go? See our fathers and our mothers and our children sinking down. Brethren, pray, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. Sisters, will you join and help us? Moses' sister aided him. Will you help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? Tell them all about the Savior. Tell them that he will be found. Sisters, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. As important as it is that we speak aright about the Lord Jesus, it is of vastly infinite more importance that the Lord Jesus who says, let there be light, will shine and open the eyes of our heart that we might see the Lord Jesus in his glory. Remember the context in which this revelation came. It's this vision of glory, the glory that is in, in Jesus and will be made manifest to all that is supposed to sustain us in the moments of suffering. When cross-bearing becomes especially hard. Let's think about that as we move on to the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples after the uh, transfiguration. Jesus talks to them and he reminds them that, number two, suffering is part of the plan. Suffering is part of the plan. Verse 9, they come down the mountain and Jesus gives them, this is the last secrecy warning in Matthew 17, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. It's a reminder to us, you should be encouraged, there are parts of the Gospels that you may not understand unless you read it from the backwards, backwards to the front, from the end to the beginning. Uh, think about it uh, like a great mystery novel. The Gospels are not mysteries, but this is how mystery novels sometimes work. You read in the last two or three pages who did it, and then it makes all kinds of other scenes earlier in the book make sense. Ah, oh, yeah, I understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Same thing with the Gospels. What Jesus says to them, what you just saw will make supreme sense after I rise from the dead. Which prompted them to ask a question. Uh, what, what, then what, the, the teachers of the law, our religious teachers, talk a lot about Elijah coming. And, and here you are, you're the Lord of glory. We believe that you're the Lord of glory. But what about Elijah? We haven't seen Elijah. And isn't Elijah supposed to come? Didn't Malachi the prophet prophesy that Elijah would come? And Jesus says, yeah, that, that is true. That is true. But, verse 12, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. Those, those same teachers of the law who talked about Elijah all the time, Elijah came and they didn't recognize him and they mistreated him. Now, he's talking about John the Baptist. Verse 13 tells us that. 
And the teachers of the law did not behead John the Baptist, but they had not honored him or listened to him or repented of his preaching before. They mistreated him. And Jesus says, in the same way, I'm going to suffer at their hands. This is the Lord of glory. He's going to be misunderstood. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. It's all part of the plan. Do you believe that, Peter, James, John? Do you believe that, that this is part of the plan, part of God's plan? It's what happened to John. He came. He was not recognized. He was not honored. He was instead rejected and then beheaded. It's going to happen to the Lord Jesus. He came. He was not listened to. He was not honored. He was not worshipped. He was crucified. And if that happened to John, if that happened to Jesus, how will you expect yourself to receive a better reception? There is no glory without suffering. And the, the transfiguration here is to remind us that the promise of glory is real. It's real. How fragile is the hope of glory in your life? When suffering comes... How fragile is the weight of glory in your life? Does suffering so deflate you that there's hardly any hope of glory left? Jesus knew that that would be the temptation that Peter would face and James and John. And he knew it would be the temptation that you would face. So in his kindness, he wrote about this encounter that they had with the Lord of glory. So that when the weight of suffering comes... Uh, you might have buoyancy in your life because there is glory to come. The glory of the Lord Jesus, it is to come. Do you suffer with that in mind? I told you before about Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray was a South, uh, South African Bible teacher. And, and he went once, one time he was in England on a ministry tour doing a lot of preaching and teaching. And he woke up one morning and he had terrible, terrible, paralyzing, as it were, back pain an accident that he had had several years ago just came back and visited him and he was in horrible, horrible pain and he had so many things on his schedule, so many things he was going to do. How, how is he going to make it? He got out a pen and a piece of paper and he wrote a note to himself. Um, <laughs> some of you listen to your back pain too much and you should start talking to your back pain. Actually, he's not talking to his back pain, he's talking to himself. Here's what he wrote to himself. In time of trouble, say, God will keep us by his love. By his grace, we can rest in him. Then, like a good preacher, he makes himself a four-point sermon. First, God brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this straight place and that I will rest. Next, he will keep me in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then... He will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace that he means to bestow. Last, in his good time, he can bring me out again, how and when he knows. I am here. Now he finishes up with four great prepositions. I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. I'll add one more. On the way to glory. By God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time, on the way to glory. Is that how you suffer? There's two verses that are unique to this passage, unique to Matthew, in verses 6 to 8, that I want to think about. That, that give us, just to finish, 
that might help us make it through. It's not the main point of the text, but look at how Jesus responds to the disciples. There's almost an image here of how we follow Jesus. Verse 6 tells us the disciples were terrified. They fell on their face before God. This always happens when God appears in the Bible. People come into contact with God and they fall to their knees. It's interesting. They just had a little glimpse of the glory. I mean, there was just a cloud and there was just some brightness and just a voice. And boom, that puts them down. Can you imagine if God said, here I am and all that glory? Whoa. They fall down terrified. This is the terror of a creature in the presence of his glorious creator. Even more so, though, here is the presence of rebellious, sinful creatures in the presence of holy God. Oh. When, you, when it's dinner time at your house and you announce to the family, come hither, come yonder, uh, it's dinner time. One of the next words out of your mouth, I'm sure, are wash your hands. Wash your hands. Don't come to the table to eat with dirty hands. Wash the germs and the dirt and the grime and whatever you got on it. Wash your hands because you don't bring dirty hands to a clean table to eat clean food that you're going to put in your mouth. Don't bring a dirty life into the presence of a holy God. They're down on their faces, and Jesus comes and raises them up. Very gently, he reaches out, touches them. Get up, don't be afraid. Reminding us, this passage reminds us of two simultaneous truths about human beings. Number one, you are, have dirty hands before a holy God, and you are not good enough to, to be comfortable or safe in the holy God's presence. You are not good enough. But this passage also reminds us that you are bad enough, not bad enough that you cannot be rescued by the Lord Jesus. You are too sinful to come into the presence of the holy God, but you're not so sinful that you can run far enough away that he cannot rescue you. And the Lord Jesus reaches down to the touch and with his voice, and they look up and all they see is Jesus, Jesus alone. The text emphasizes the original. Jesus alone, that's all they see. He's enough. He speaks he touches them. He came to be with them, to be one of us. He identified with us by becoming, taking to himself human flesh. And, and his identification with us extends through all of life and through all of our troubles. And it extends all the way even to the cross where he became our sin bearer. He's our savior. We, we lay our faith, our trust in him, our sin bearer. And the same faith that lays hold of him as savior is the faith that lays hold of him as sustainer in the midst of your suffering. There's no suffering without glory, but the glory that is to come. No, sorry, there's no glory without suffering. But the glory that is to come is astounding. It's enough glory that even this glimpse of it will handle any level of leaky faith. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. Lord, we confess, uh, we are grateful to you for this description of the revelation uh, of a, a bit of the glory that belongs to the Lord Jesus. Father, we confess to you that we need it because we are often discouraged. There are some of us in this room who are bearing this week deep burdens. 
It's, it's their turn this week. It will be somebody else's turn next week. Deep burdens that are deflating to us. Suffering that comes from trying to follow the Lord Jesus in this broken, hard world. So we come before you and we ask that you, according to your mercy, would uh, remind us of the glory that is to come when the Lord Jesus returns. Help us to see him with the eyes of faith as we hear the good news. Give us eyes that, um, and, and hearts that rejoice in the glory and honor that is the Lord Jesus's, so that we might be transformed by that great vision. Help us, oh help us, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying together, amen.